in these passages before us tonight. So we see sin and Satan dealt with in chapter 20. Then we get this glorious first glimpse of what God has prepared for us. Out with the old and the evil, in with the new and the good. However, chapter 20 of Revelation is controversial. It's probably the passage that is argued about most in the whole of the book of Revelation and perhaps in the the whole of the Bible. And the issue is the reference to the 1,000 years that is mentioned here six times in verses 1 to 7, or the millennium. And more significantly, when does this 1,000 years take place? Now, I don't particularly want to get bogged down um, in the details because, well, two reasons. One is that we actually dealt with that at the adult Bible class this morning and was well announced. And if you really were interested in all the theories, then you could have been there and and most of you weren't. So they are. Maybe, Maybe it's not such an issue. Maybe it's not such an issue. And the second reason why we don't want to get bogged down in this is because even though we might disagree in the theories, we all agree on so much that's important. And isn't it typical of evangelicals that we concentrate on the things that divide us rather than the things that unite us? Here's three things that I think we've got to hold um, tonight. We all believe this. Jesus is coming back, and we must be ready. We must be expectant and watchful and prayerful. I hope you are, because you're being asked to. Trusting in him, ready to meet the king, because we don't know when he will come. And I would suggest this truth is far more important than the technical disagreements about how he's going to do it. As I said in the prayer, let him decide how, when, and where this is all going to occur. Leave it to him. But more importantly, the fact is that Jesus is coming back again. Here's a second thing. Everyone will be judged, the living and the dead. We will face the judgment of God. We're going to be given new bodies, we're told. How are we going to do how he's going to do this? I don't know. But I trust him who knows the end from the beginning. We're going to give an account to him. No exceptions, no exemptions. Don't think you're going to skip on the technicality. You'll not. That's the second great thing we must hold tonight. The third thing is this. This is what we all hold in agreement. That the Bible is God's word. That we believe in his revelation. There may be some disagreements on secondary issues, but we hold to the authority of Scripture. And of course, I listened to a number of different people this week from different viewpoints. I spent hours and hours and hours on this one, I can tell you. And everybody says the exact same thing. And when Jesus comes back, of course, we will know that we are right. Everybody says that. And not everybody can be right. Maybe everybody's wrong. I don't know. But what we want to do is, is briefly give the four different um, views. This is the dispensational premillennial view. This is the one that's uh, uh, most popular in the United States of America, in evangelicalism. It's actually only about 170 years old. It's, it's one of the latest ones, but it's, we start with it because it's the most popular. And you can see here the secret rapture of Christ. This is a church age in which we're in now. We've got the resurrection of the, of the Christians here in the secret rapture. They're taken away to heaven. There's this tribulation period. Then we, basically Jesus returns with these people here, and there's the sheep and goats judgment. 
Then the thousand years. That's where the millennium is. After all of this, this is what they believe is where the thousand years is. Another little season of Satan's activity. And then the resurrection of the unjust at the white throne judgment. And I spent about half an hour, well, 10 minutes, not this morning, this particular one, so I'm not going to. At the end, of course, is the new heavens and new earth. The second view is the historic pre-mill view, where it's a much simpler view, is, is that basically this is the church age in which we're in, and then the second advent, Christ returns, the resurrection of the Christians, a thousand years. Some would believe that that's a literal thousand years, and there's going to be a literal white throne, and there's going to be and even the return of the sacrificial system, some would believe, uh, which is very interesting. Um, I believe very wrong. Um, and then, of course, the resurrection of the unjust. And that's the end with the new heavens and the new earth. Here's one that isn't just quite so popular these days, but it is popular in places where revival is occurring, where the church is growing. Um, and has been, in fact, some of the, the great saints of the past believed in this theory of post-millennial um, view, the church age, the thousand years is blended into this. There's no beginning or end to it. There's a period of time where the gospel is advancing and, and people are being converted. And as I will tell you later on, just because it's not happening in the Western world doesn't mean it's not happening. It is happening. I'll give you a few statistics that will lift your hearts, I hope, tonight. But after a kind of tribulation period, then the second coming of Christ, everybody is judged as we're all resurrected from the dead and the new heavens and the new earth. The fourth view is the A-mill. When you see A there, it means no millennial. In other words, no literal thousand years. Um, what we have is the church age is the thousand years. And basically, there's a period right before the return of Christ of Satan's activity where he will be let loose. Um, this view believes that actually this period he is actually bound. We'll look at that later on. He's let loose. There's going to be a, a, a resurrection um, and rapture in the sense that we're, the Christians are taken uh, into the new heaven and the new earth. And, of course, the unsaved, right throughout the ages, will be judged and they will be put into the lake of sulfur, the um, Satan's eternal home. So which view do I think is the right one? Well, really, it doesn't matter what I think. Um, this is what I believe the Bible teaches. I believe that the fourth view is the one that the Bible teaches. And it's the one that most Reformed people right across the world um, would hold to. And the reasons are that it best lines up with what Paul teaches um, in the epistles and what Jesus teaches in the Gospels. So what this position believes is that the millennium is the period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, the so-called church age, which is right now. Revelation 20, therefore, is another and last cycle in the book of Revelation. In other words, what we've been doing as we've been studying the book of Revelation is seeing the same period of history between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus being described to us but each time from a different perspective. It's like seeing Harry Kane score a goal for the mighty Spurs. You know what happens? There's five or six, let's imagine seven, 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 seven different cameras watching that goal scored. What happens? We see each angle, don't we? We see what goes on until the ball crosses the line and the celebrations begin. There's a, a different focus each time telling us what is actually happening. And that's what we see in these seven cycles. Um, I think we need to explain a wee bit more about these seven cycles. 
And there they are. Now, again, would you believe it? We can't even agree on when these, where these cycles are. Some believe, for instance, that um, verses, uh, chapters 1 to 3 is the first cycle, and then the, the last cycle um, is this one here uh, includes... So this one here includes this one here, so it's five and six are together. This is, the, this is the way I like it to be seen, and this is the way I understand it. Chapters 1 to 3 in the book of Revelation is Jesus and the churches, right? So the seven letters to the seven churches. And he explains painfully to us what it's going to be like in the church as we wait for Jesus to come back again. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be false teaching. There's going to be the danger of complacency. There's going to be people who fall away. That's what it's going to be like, he says. And that's an explanation for the church in every era, in every place, in every period of history between the first and second comings of Jesus. And then we have these seven cycles. And you remember the seals. Jesus is on the throne, gloriously on the throne in chapters 4 to 7. That's where the focus is, complete control. And, and God is saying, please, church, don't forget that. Jesus is on the throne. Never forget that. But then in the second cycle, looking at the same period of history, there's the call to repent. You remember that? We've spent a long time in that. The, the, the signs of natural disasters, the signs of the fact that there's false teachers are warnings to the world. Repent. The same period of history, but a different focus. The third cycle is in chapters 12 to 14. Do you remember the beasts, the beasts of the sea? Power, the beast of the land, deception. That's what we're warned about. Again, the same period of history looked at from a different angle. Then the fourth cycle was the bowls, chapters 15 and 16. And then we have five and six. Cycle five and cycle six is really concentrating on the end times. So in other words, the focus is moving away less from the beginning, but more towards the end. And we saw in the fifth cycle, the mother of prostitutes, Babylon, being dealt with gloriously. And then, of course... In chapters 19, last week, we looked at the return of Jesus. He's come. He is glorious as he comes to judge. Each of these cycles, seeing the church era between the first and second comings of Jesus from a different perspective. For instance, let me just, I think I have time for this. I probably don't, but I'm going to use it anyway. Take, for instance, the, the, the seals and the trumpets. What was emphasized there basically is God's active judgment now. God's active judgment. But the sixth cycle, for instance, emphasizes the actual return of Jesus at the end of the cycle, at the end of time. And so we have the seventh cycle, chapter 20 to the end. It's called progressive parallelism. So in other words, it's not one on top of the other, one after the other. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, telling, explaining the same period of time in, in slightly different ways. And in chapter 20, he's giving us the final details of the final judgment. And all the things that could spoil the new heaven and the new earth are going to be dealt with. Now, there are many reasons why we believe that uh, chapter 20 is the beginning of the final cycle. Uh, we'll need time to give you one. But let's take the one that's nearest to chapter 20, which, of course, is chapter 19. What happened at the end of chapter 19? We were, if you were here last week, you, you will know. Verse 21 tells us, 
if you've got it, look at there, read it. 19 verse 21, the rest of them were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider of the horse. That's Jesus. And all the birds gouged themselves on their flesh. That, that, that's the final battle, isn't it? That's the end. You know, God has come, Jesus has come, judgment has been meted out, and all the bad guys, they're done. They're finished. In fact, what a picture here of birds gouging themselves on their flesh. In other words, there's no hope. There's nobody left. And yet here in chapter 20, verses 7 to 9, we have them appearing again. Why? Because it's the same story told in a different way. In fact, verses 7 to 9, this, this great battle we've seen before. Chapter 11, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 19. How many final battles can there be? Only one. But it's described in these different ways throughout the book. Because it's parallel storytelling by John So chapter 20 is another cycle. Life between the first and second advents of Jesus. And particularly the focus of this cycle is that God, are you listening? God is going to remove everyone and everything that could spoil the new heaven and the new earth, which he's going to bring in, as explained in chapter 21. So chapter 20 is very important. He says, I am going to get rid of this stuff and these people and these things that could spoil my new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Out, out, out with the old sin and Satan and in with the new. Let's think about that, out with the old. And let's think, first of all, Satan is doomed, we're told in verses 1 to 3 there. And they saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over and uh, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. You see, Satan, we've said this before, is, is finished. We've, we've seen this right throughout the whole book. He, D-Day has happened. But remember that picture we used of the Second World War? D-Day was when, in a sense, the war, Second World War was won, but the war went on for almost another year. A Satan, or in this case as Hitler, tried to stop what was inevitable. D-Day has happened as far as Satan is concerned. We're looking forward to VE Day, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. But the key theme of verses 1 to 3 is this idea of Satan being bound. And what we read there, glorious, isn't it? That an angel takes Satan like a snake handler, because he is the serpent after all, and he places him in the abyss for a thousand years. So when did this happen? When is Satan taken and bound for a thousand years? Well, we believe that it was in the ministry of Jesus that this occurred. And that's why we read uh, earlier in the service from Matthew chapter 12. If you know the story in chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel, and by the way, we will, we're going to continue in the morning in Matthew's gospel after Christmas, and we're going to see this. We'll eventually, God willing, get to this passage. But Jesus is accused by the, his enemies 
that he's driving out demons by the power of demons. And Jesus says, ridiculous. I mean, I can't do what I'm doing to demons and to evil unless I first tie up or bind the strong man. That's why verse 29 is so important. He says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. That word is exactly the same word that's used in Revelation 20, binding up or tying up. And so Jesus is saying, by my ministry here on earth, I have bound Satan. That's the meaning of my coming. That's one of the consequences of my coming. Distant view of Revelation 20 and Matthew 12 is that the first coming of Jesus bound. And, and that's why in, in Luke uh, 10, in the passage about the sending out of the 72, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And what did Jesus reply? Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Of course he did. Why? Because he bound him up. He bound him up. And verse 3 tells us um, he threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed. Why? Why was he locked and sealed in the abyss? Because we're told that he would be kept from deceiving the nations. Verse 3, he's bound for him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. He once deceived the nations. But here's the good news. Not now. That's why Colossians 2, we read that at the beginning of the service. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So now, Satan is bound and tied up. By the way, it doesn't mean he's not inactive. Of course, we've been learning that he uses political power. He, he uses false teaching. That's the, the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. But here's the point. He cannot stop the gospel from being preached to the nations. Notice that. To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. And that's why John, um, also in the the gospel, the same John, by the way, John 12, verse 31 and 32, this is what he said, or Jesus said, now is the time for judgment to come on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. All men, in this case, means all nations, all types of men and people. Promised in the Old Testament. Now fulfilled in Christ. Here's a question. From the time of Abraham... Imagine Abraham's over here, the time of Abraham, to the time of Christ, how many nations were reached with the good news of God? Now, if you were here at the Adult Bible class this morning, you'll know the answer. Somebody said seven for a bit of a joke, because seven's everywhere. But the answer is one. Only one. I'm pretty poorly at that. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, only one. From the time of Abraham to the time of Christ, only one nation heard the good news of the living God. Why? Because Satan 
deceive the nations. But from Christ until now, how many nations have been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Lots and lots and lots, hundreds. I don't know how many nations are there in the world. Lots and lots and lots, hundreds of nations. Why? Because Satan is bound. From the time of Christ, Satan has been bound from, listen, not from creating chaos and morality and all that stuff. We know that he still does that. To keep him from deceiving the nations. And Isaiah, there's the picture of the nations streaming to God. But not until Christ came and bound up Satan was that able to happen. Do you know when t- today in Africa, it's estimated that 17,000 people will come to Christ. Today, 17,000. And the same tomorrow, Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday. You get in the picture? 17,000 people per day in the continent of Africa. Why? Because Satan is bound and cannot deceive the nations the way he used to. In China today, 20,000 people are estimated to come to Christ. And you know what I'm going to say. And the same tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday. Why? Because once upon a time, that great land was bound by Satan. But not now. In northern India, and some of us have a love for India, I know, 10,000 churches have been planted in the last 10 years. 10,000 churches. Why? Because Satan has been bound by Christ. And Pakistan, is that how pronounce that properly? Well, one of those countries anyway, um, a Muslim country, 100 churches planted in the last three or four years. In a Muslim country. Why? <clears throat> I'm getting excited. Calm down. Because Satan has been bound by Jesus. Satan cannot do what he wants to do. Deceive the nations. That's what we're told, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Praise God that the nations can hear. Praise his name. The Great Commission will be fulfilled. We can go and make disciples of all nations. That's why we should be given to the missionary fund, so we can support the work in Krakow and in Sweden and in Poland. Krakow was in Poland, yes. Um, Romania and Guatemala and to the ends of the earth. By the way, you, are you a Christian tonight? Are you a Christian tonight? Well, you are proof, if ever there was needed to be proof, that this nation has been allowed to hear the gospel because until Christ came and defeated Satan and bound him up. We didn't hear the gospel of God, the good news of God. I've spent far too long on that, but Satan has been vanquished on earth in the thousand years. And since, of course, I've... um, um, Oh, I've forgotten all that. Oh, I've forgotten that too. Um, But also... um, Saints are victorious in heaven, verses 4 to 6. We haven't time to read read that, but um, you've got to realize, you know what, what, what's happening at this moment in time with our forefathers who know and love Christ and have gone to to be with Jesus? Are they floating around the clouds aimlessly, you know, playing harps, eating Philadelphia cheese? No. 
No, they're not. They're ruling and they're reigning with Christ. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. In other words, those who are martyred first and foremost. This is wonderful, is it not? They're with the Lord better by far. And notice the verse 6 there. We haven't time to look at all this. But they cannot be touched by the second death. Isn't this wonderful? The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God under Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. At this moment in time, the saints in heaven are reigning with Christ. So verses 4 to 6 describes the current condition of the saints of Christ who are dead in Christ. But, of course, Satan needs to be destroyed, does he not? You know, if we're going to persevere, this is the thing that really encouraged me this week. You know, if I'm going to fight my battle with sin, I need to know that the one who tempts me is one day going to be wiped out and dealt with. And what we're told here in verses uh, 7 to 10 is a vision of Satan's destruction. Yes, he is released to do his work in the world, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations. And we have reference there to Gog and Magog. You've got to read Ezekiel 38 and 39 for that. But this is the final onslaught on the church. And here's the sad reality. The gospel is presented to the world. And yet in the end, millions will reject it. But there's this one massive final battle where he brings together all his followers and this, again, this is a, this is a picture. This is, this is a picture of what it's going to be like. Satan's hordes meeting to destroy the church. But it never happens. First, the end of verse 9. It never happens. Um, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. This is, again, the same battle that's referred back to chapter 19 and chapter 16 and chapter 11. It's all over before it starts. Because there's only going to be one winner in the end. Our God and our Father. And the devil, verse 10, he's finished. We should read this. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and forever. There's going to be no sequel. No Revelation part two. No comeback. No uh, let's get together for a final tour. It's over for him. Be encouraged. Be encouraged tonight. There's only one place for Satan. This burning place of sulfur. No fun, no party. Because, as I said at the beginning, he cannot enter the new heaven and the new earth. He would destroy it. So God deals with him. Satan is doomed. Also, sinners can't um, enter the new heaven and the earth and the new earth. They too would spoil it and destroy it. I, I'm not going to step into God's presence in my sin. Could you imagine anything worse? And neither will you. Verse 11 to 15, God deals with them. Uh, what we have in, in verse 11, this is a, another picture. Remember, there's full of pictures here. Um, some people take this, all these images literally and they're in danger of doing it. When they do that, they're in great danger of getting it so wrong and, and just putting on our interpretation of these visions. 
Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence. In other words, the present creation melts away. There's no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. God deals with sinners on that day. And all who ever lived, verse 12 and 13, we're told, will be present in this courtroom. Now, how? I can only begin to use my tiny little imagination to understand this. Billions and billions and billions and billions of people. And guess what? You're going to be there. And so am I. Can you see yourself? I don't know who you'll be standing beside. You could be standing beside Boris Johnson, for instance. Or you could be standing beside some unknown person from the 13th or the 3rd century. But we will stand there. The saved and the unsaved, the rich and the poor, the wise and the foolish. And remember, oh, how is he going to do this? Don't think for one minute he's going to have any difficulty with this because time means nothing in this new creation situation. Time means nothing. We're curtailed by time. You're probably thinking, when's he going to finish? When's he? Listen, there, time will mean nothing. And each one will give an account. Verse 12, the books are opened. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. It's like, this is your life. If you're of a certain age, you will know what I'm talking about. This is your life. The story of your life will be revealed. And if your book name is not in the book of life, remember verse 12, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. If your name's not in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, then you're going into the lake of fire. I'm sorry to tell you. I'm privileged to tell you. Tonight, if you are unsaved and your name is not in the book of life, there's only one place for you. There's only one place for you. But the book of life lists the saved, those who kept going, who didn't give up. Verse 14 and 15, out with the old. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown into the lake of fire. In the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be no room for sinners, for sin, or for Satan. Folks, there's going to be an end. Satan and his team are losers. The unsaved, the lost, the gospel rejectors will go in to the lake of fire. And words, I don't think, can describe how awful it will be. If the description is as bad as this, I think the reality is going to be a lot worse. But I hope you're grateful tonight 
for another warning and another invitation if you're unsaved. Another warning. Another invitation. Out with the old. There's nothing there for us. But then with the new, can I briefly deal with this just for a few moments? There's simply not enough time. But what we have here in these eight verses in, in chapter 21 is like a postcard. I wish you were here postcard of what it's going to be like in the new heaven and the, the new earth. It's, going to, it's to encourage us to keep going and not give up. For those of us who are saved, Isaiah 50, 65, um, all the, most of the imagery here from um, uh, Revelation 21 is, is dealt with, um, is from Isaiah 65. John Richardson in his little book is, is right to say that the Bible is quite reserved when it deals with the afterlife. The threat of hell and the, the treat of heaven, actually, there's not a lot there. There's not as much as we might think there is. Or there's not as much as the hellfire and brimstone preachers <laughs> would indicate. But the key point, actually, is, is verse 3, I think. Um, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Full redemption. Heaven comes to us. God comes to us. New relationships with God. And uh, a new creation from God. Notice that it's the new Jerusalem that's highlighted here. Um, the new Jerusalem coming down. I saw, verse 2, this holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. No sin in the holy city. A holy people, fit for heaven, fit for eternal life. No clouds, no harps, but new relationships. And the new creation, new, notice there's repeated, verse 1 twice, verse 2, verse 5. It means transformed, renewed, similar, but better, and radically different. So there's going to be no chaos. Verse 1, no longer any sea. That means, that was seen as the place of sin and chaos and confusion. And there's going to be none of that. doesn't mean there's going to be no water in the new heaven and the earth. For those of you who like swimming, don't get too concerned. But there's going to be no tears. No tears. Do you cry out in pain? Are you worried about what's going to happen tomorrow? No death. We're going to have a funeral here tomorrow. There's going to be a time when there's going to be no more of that. No mourning, no crying, no pain. The old has gone, you see. The new has come. Imagine, no cancer. No cruelty. No divorces. No depression. No envy. No environmental damage. See, none of these evil things will exist. In fact, none of the evil things verse, mentioned in, in verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, this is actually immoral. Those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second. There's no place for any of that. But before we finish, note verses 6 and 7. Jesus reminds us that it is done. It is done. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the, living, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It is done. Does that sound familiar? Yeah? 
on the cross, what did Jesus cry out? It is finished. Yes. Jesus reminds us of where it all matters. He takes us back to the cross where the ultimate place of sin being defeated occurred, where Satan was actually bound so that we might hear the gospel and the nations will not be deceived, where overcoming became possible and where sonship was opened up to us and the Alpha and Omega makes it all possible. If you're not a Christian tonight, I wonder, are you thirsty? And you're fed up. You've tried all the broken cisterns. You've tried all the liquids of the world. And they have failed you. Over and over again, they've failed you. And you're thirsty for hope. You're, you're thirsty for truth. You're thirsty for salvation. Drink from the living water. If you're unsaved, drink from the water. To him who's thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And if you're a Christian, then verse 7 is for you, is it not? He who overcomes will inherit all this, he says, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Overcome. Believer, overcome. Because the ultimately, the only way we can prove that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life is if we overcome. This is the perseverance of the saints. It's the P of tulip, if you're into tulip. And if you don't understand tulip, well, forget I even said it. The new has come. The new has come. And all of it for his people who drink of the water of life and who overcome to the end. Please, my friends, if you're unsaved, tonight, drink of Christ. If you're rebelling against him, tonight, drink of the living water. And if you are one of his, keep going. Don't give up. Don't compromise. Because the old will one day be gone and the new will come. Let me lead you in prayer.